Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Julio Lopez of the Center for Popular Democracy, who assesses the inadequacies of the COVID-19 relief bill just signed by President Trump, and what the incoming Biden administration must do to increase aid to the nation's most vulnerable. Max Moran of the Revolving Door Project who examines Joe Biden's nomination of former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg as Transportation Secretary, and what that foreshadows about the incoming administration. And Tony the Democrat, founder of the Progressive Electoral Outreach Project, Postcards to Voters, who talks about his group's success in connecting with millions of voters nationwide and their work on Georgia's two critical Senate runoff elections on January 5th. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. For 11 years, Mexican migrant Jaime Solano worked in the low-wage food service industry in New York City. He delivered takeout for restaurants and worked as kitchen staff. He sent his savings to his family in the impoverished state of Guerrero in southern Mexico until he died of COVID-19 over the summer. His death left his wife and family with little means of support. According to The Nation magazine, 2,500 Mexican immigrants have died from COVID-19 during the pandemic in the United States. Many of these people left families behind in Mexico's poorest regions. Remittances sent home by migrant workers are a lifeline to many Mexican families, totaling some $30 million in the first nine months of 2020, a 10% increase over 2019. Those funds exceed the amount of money generated by Mexico's oil exports. Most women in Guerrero are primary caregivers for their children and have few prospects for jobs other than as seasonal laborers. At the same time, residents regularly confront violence from drug traffickers, as the state is a top producer of opium poppies. The pandemic has thrown Mexico into the worst economic crisis in a century, but migration to the U.S. has become harder in recent years with low wages, the high cost of living, and more obstacles to finding formal employment. Fabian Morales, the head of Guerrero's Migrant and International Affairs, observes, there was a time when the U.S. held great opportunities, he said, but not anymore. Africa's largest man-made dam, the Kariba Dam, built by European colonial powers in the 1950s, is in trouble. The dam, located on the border between Zimbabwe and Zambia, has been hit by a destructive pattern of seasonal droughts, which have cut off its 1,830-megawatt hydroelectric power supply to the region. Aging infrastructure is leading to the dam's potential collapse. Over six decades of the waters rushing through it and tumbling over the dam have carved a pit at its base, and erosion threatens its very foundation. If the dam does collapse, a tsunami-like wall of water would tear through the Zambezi River Valley, which could destroy another dam 100 miles away, the Kahora Basa Dam in Mozambique. The twin disasters would take out 40% of the hydroelectric power capacity for all of southern Africa. The New York Times Magazine recently recounted the history of the dam, 
whose construction caused the forced resettlement of some 57,000 Tonga people from their ancestral home in the fertile Gwembe Valley. China, Africa's newest colonial power, is now building another megadam on a tributary of the Zambezi. But the Chinese government is turning away from hydroelectric power and toward solar and wind energy. They know that in the midst of a global climate change crisis, finding alternatives to dams is better than trying to fix them. The passage of California's Proposition 22 on Election Day defined app-based rideshare and delivery drivers working for companies like Uber and Lyft as independent contractors, denying them the rights and protections as employees. These self-employed gig workers must now service their own equipment, manage their own payroll taxes, and shop for their own high-priced individual health insurance plans. The gig companies behind Prop 22 Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, that spent $200 million to win the California measure, are now taking their anti-labor campaign to other states across the U.S. None of the companies who brought about Prop 22 is actually profitable. Uber has lost $26.5 billion since 2014. Their partners on Prop 22 have bled another $9 billion. Selling anything indefinitely at a loss is technically illegal because the seller typically does it to crush competition in the short term so it will be able to secure absolute pricing power in the long term. This is the same business model developed by Amazon that makes these digital monopolies the common enemy of both workers and small business owners. In These Times magazine reports that the House Judiciary Committee published a blistering 450-page investigation in October that concluded Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google have transformed into monopoly powerhouses. Not long after, Google and Facebook were hit with bipartisan lawsuits from dozens of states all over the country. The antitrust suits, now targeting the biggest tech companies in the world, are gaining momentum. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. While the COVID-19 relief package passed by Congress was inadequate in many fundamental ways, President Trump's decision to hold the bill hostage until December 27th has delayed government checks being sent to 14 million Americans whose unemployment benefits had expired. Although Trump ignored earlier negotiations over the $900 billion relief bill, at the 11th hour, he complained that the $600 stimulus checks in the bill weren't enough and demanded an increase to $2,000. Democrats supported Trump's proposal, and the House quickly voted to authorize the $2,000 checks. But the fate of issuing larger checks now lies with the Republican-controlled Senate that has, since May, blocked a vote on a $3 trillion relief package passed by the House. The legislation's resumption and expansion of the Payroll Protection Plan to assist some small businesses, rent relief, continued eviction protection, and food benefits is welcome news. But the relief bill's $300 weekly additional payment to the unemployed was half of what was given when the pandemic first struck, 
and the lack of any funds for state and local governments will deepen the economic crisis across the country. Your reporter spoke with Julio Lopez, the Center for Popular Democracy's co-director for community dignity campaigns. Here he assesses the COVID relief package and the pressure on the incoming Biden administration to increase aid targeted to the nation's most vulnerable. It's been so long since people have received anything. For progressive organizations like the Center for Popular Democracy, it was like, is this what we want? No, like we know that we need more. And when President Trump started talking about $2,000, we were like, yeah, that's what we've been saying for a while. You know, people need money. And in the middle of the holidays, we kind of made this bet that we needed to move something that would support people in, in this desperate moment because we knew that we were in the middle of this cutoff where unemployment checks were going to collapse, um, that the housing eviction moratorium was going to last. So we, we were in this moment where over, almost 16 million people were going to lose their unemployment benefits, 40 million people were going to lose their uh, eviction support moratorium protections. And we decided that we were going to double down and making sure that people at least got some money in their pockets, uh, which is why we supported the $600 check. And we were pushing really hard to make sure that people got something beyond the normal unemployment check so they could be supported. Uh, what happened over the last week is kind of like this crazy world we, we live in where we end up in this compromise bill that nobody was happy with, like Democrats weren't happy with it, Republicans weren't happy with it, even progressive organizations weren't happy with it. And in the middle of that, President Trump decides that he wants $2,000. He waits four days to actually sign the bill, which actually means that about 60 million people lost a week of unemployment benefits um, because of that lapse, because this bill is actually like is done in a way where the benefits are, are going to stop no matter what happens in March. There's no rollover. If we want to stop this virus, we need to be home. And if we need to be home, we need to be able to support our families. And if we need to support our families, then what are the things we need? And what we need is a home, which means we need to pay our bills. What we need is money, which means that if you're unemployed, you need a check. And if you're not working for some reason or another, you need some extra money. So we were saying, like, if you are asking folks to stay home, let's make sure that people can stay home in a way that's supportive of them. Julio, I did want to ask you about criticism leveled at uh, several of the items in this relief package that includes major tax breaks for three martini lunches, the sort of meal allowance tax break for big business, as well as uh, some aid for thoroughbred horses in places like Kentucky, the state of uh, majority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell. Anything you want to say about those items which seem to have no place in an emergency relief package? I think we all knew that this wasn't going to be a perfect package. When this package was started to be negotiated, Leader McConnell was actually asking for corporate liability or um, big corporations that were being sued because of their malfeasance when it came to COVID. And we were able to get that out of the table. Um, at the same time, we weren't able to actually negotiate for more money for state and localities. So this is not a perfect bill at all. It is a bill that has many holes and problems, and you've just mentioned two of them. In our minds, it was like, how do we get people money in their pockets right now? What I'm thinking about is not necessarily how this bill is not perfect. I'm thinking about how are we fighting 
from the first day of, that Biden takes over as president of the United States for a bill that actually reflects the needs and the wants of people that are suffering, um, because that's what we need to do. Joe Biden is due to take the oath of the presidency on January 20th, and he's going to have to deal with many crises all at once. But when it comes to emergency relief for people across the country who are suffering from this health crisis and economic crisis, what are the top agenda items that you have and want to apply pressure to the Biden administration to get to work on immediately when they take the reins of power? For us, the most important things are going to be health care. Of course, we need to make sure that um, the vaccines are available, that are being distributed, and anybody and everybody that can have it will have it and that any sort of healthcare services are, are provided free. Or on the other hand, we want to make sure everybody is included. We think that if we don't include, for example, undocumented people, we are actually putting our backs for the people that are actually working. You know, even if you are anti-immigration, you should know that these are the people that work our fields and the fact that they are vaccinated is good because we're all safe. But I think it's also humane. Uh, we definitely want to make sure that people have money in their packets. So once again, um, it's 600 today, but we're going to be pushing really hard for 2000 uh, when President Biden comes in. Um, the same thing with unemployment is still going to be a fight. And I think going back to the, um, the Senate fight in, in Georgia, this is going to also determine the, who controls the Senate to move forward with a broader agenda, democratic agenda or not. I think even then, whatever happens, we're going to have to push uh, Biden a lot. So we will be in the streets. Uh, we already have actions planned for the next month uh, where we're going to be pushing President Biden to do as much as he can to make sure people, you know, people can stay home, people can stay safe, and that they have money in their pockets to support their families and their children. That was Julio Lopez, the Center for Popular Democracy's co-director for Community Dignity Campaigns. Find more perspectives on the COVID relief bill and urgently needed future aid by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. It's no surprise that President-elect Joe Biden has nominated mostly moderates to top posts in his administration. A good example is former South Bend, Indiana mayor and former Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg who at the beginning of the 2020 primary season was running way ahead of Biden. In mid-December, Biden announced that he would nominate Buttigieg to become the nation's next transportation secretary, despite his having almost no experience in the field. This and other cabinet appointments contradicts Biden's campaign promise to name competent and experienced people to his administration, unlike his predecessor Donald Trump. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Max Moran, a researcher with the Revolving Door Project at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Here he talks about why Biden likely selected Buttigieg, how that could foreshadow the direction of the incoming administration, and Buttigieg's future political career. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that the only real reason Pete Buttigieg is receiving a position in the incoming cabinet is that Biden feels that he owes him a favor for earlier on in this year when sort of support from the moderate wing of the Democratic Party really sort of consolidated around him. Pete Buttigieg dropping out and endorsing Biden was one of sort of those linchpin moments that helped to 
affirmed to moderates, at least, that Biden was going to be their candidate of choice to overcome Bernie Sanders. So as a result, Pete Buttigieg feels that he basically can call in a favor from Joe Biden. And Joe Biden is a pretty sort of classic sort of backslapping sort of transactional type of politician. And so he really takes that kind of thing very seriously. I think that uh, Buttigieg has also done a very good job over the course of the last couple of years of really establishing himself as sort of a potential future for that type of moderate wing of the Democratic Party, a, a standard bearer. And so Biden has made clear that he sees something very important in Buttigieg, and Buttigieg is sort of the type of person that he wants to sort of hand the reins of the Democratic Party to over over the course of his um, of his term and as sort of a potential future for the party. So. Buttigieg receiving the transportation secretary position has basically nothing to do with any actual transportation experience that he has. He doesn't really have any. He was the mayor of the fourth largest city in Indiana. Uh, You know, so he managed school bus routes. He, uh, you know, helped to keep the roads paved and so on. There was actually a controversy in which um, a child was run over uh, after he removed a stop sign from the area within uh, South Bend, and his team, his, co- his communications team when he was mayor, essentially sort of like blamed the kid. Um, but, uh, you know, he doesn't really have any experience with transportation issues at scale, and certainly at the scale of leading U.S. policy in the area. The main reason he's receiving this appointment is so that his career can advance in some way. It's because he doesn't think that he can win a Senate seat or a representative seat uh, to get into federal politics in Indiana, which is an overwhelmingly conservative state. Do you know of other possible people Biden considered for transportation secretary? There had been a lot of back and forth about who was going to get the transportation secretary position. Rahm Emanuel, who was uh, Barack Obama's chief of staff at the beginning of his term and is very widely hated by progressives, reported very much wanted the transportation secretary position. Eric Garcetti, the mayor of L.A., was in talks for transportation secretary. Garcetti aside, very few of these people who were in discussions are sort of like, you know, experts in transportation policy or people who have like a really clearly stated interest in expanding mass transit and dealing with rail issues and dealing with flight issues and so on. You know, this is sort of endemic to how transportation and many of the other jobs uh, within the cabinets are viewed as sort of like political consolation prizes to some extent. And Max Moran, please talk about your concern that Buttigieg's presidential campaign kind of merged the policy piece with his fundraising arm. Of course. Uh, So Pete Buttigieg's policy director on his presidential campaign was a woman named Sanal Shah. Sanal Shah was also sort of one of the headline fundraisers on his presidential campaign. And a lot of the high-dollar fundraisers that Buttigieg held, one of the big advertised glitzy things was that that high-dollar fundraisers who came here would have a chance to have a conversation with Sanal Shah. So this is basically eroding any line whatsoever between the policy team and the fundraising team, which is supposed to be a very clear, bright line for obvious ethics issues. If you let the people who are who are raising funds for your campaign directly state and directly influence what your campaign is actually running on, the policies that you make, then it's pretty clear that you're just sort of a tool for whatever wealthy interests are, are interested. So what do you think this bodes both for Biden's cabinet and for Buttigieg's career? Buttigieg's career definitely gets a significant boost in terms of, you know, he's found his route out of Indiana now. You know, he 
made this long shot Hail Mary shot of trying to run for president, and it seems to have worked because now he is going to be leading a major cabinet department and he's going to keep his name in the news and so on. I think that for Biden's cabinet, it's quite disappointing to see that he ran very much on this message of I'm going to bring in the people with the most experience. I'm going to restore expertise to being front and center in the federal government. And instead, he seems to be picking people who he feels that he owes favors to or who are just longtime friends of his to lead important parts of the federal government. Again, Pete Buttigieg is not a transportation expert. He was the mayor of a small town who wanted to be something more than that. You know, I think that it means that you're not necessarily going to see some of the best possible uh, leadership, some of the best possible policy and passion behind these issues. It's sort of a return to business as usual politics, which a lot of people didn't like in the first place. That was Max Moran, a researcher with the Revolving Door Project at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Find more analysis and commentary on Pete Buttigieg's nomination as Transportation Secretary and other Biden appointments by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. volunteer-centered progressive electoral outreach project, founded in the wake of Donald Trump's unexpected election victory in 2016, has blossomed into an effective national get-out-the-vote organization with a proud record of success. The group, Postcards to Voters, based in Georgia, recruits volunteers to write friendly, handwritten reminders to targeted voters, giving Democrats a winning edge in close key races coast-to-coast. From its first campaign on behalf of Georgia Democratic congressional candidate John Ossoff in 2017, with the help of just five volunteers, Postcards to Voters has expanded to work with 75,000 volunteers in all 50 states, who've written close to 8 million postcards to voters in over 200 key election campaigns. Your reporter spoke with Tony the Democrat, the founder of Postcards to Voters, who talks about how his group got its start its involvement in the 2020 presidential election campaign, and the two critical Senate runoff elections in Georgia on January 5th that will determine whether Democrats or Republicans control the U.S. Senate. Our postcards are fully handwritten. We do not uh, use printed mailing labels. We don't send uh, printed postcards to the volunteers where they just sign the bottom or add a sentence at the bottom. The entire message is handwritten and hand-addressed, and we we encourage the volunteers to use any appropriate postcard, including souvenir and travel postcards. Some people make their own, but the combination of the fully handwritten message and address along with the fact that the postcard itself is not one of these immediately obvious campaign mailers. You know, you're going through your stack of mail and you run across an 8 by 10 glossy with a, you know, a photo of a candidate or maybe the opponent and headlines and all this graphic art on it, most people nowadays are, are, are not really giving those too much regard. Yeah. But then you get later in the stack of mail, you get this postcard. And it doesn't look like a campaign postcard. 
and it's handwritten to you, and it's not in an envelope, so you just it's easy to read. You don't have to make a decision, should I open this envelope from an unknown party? It's a postcard. It's like an open-faced sandwich. You know what's inside, hmm. and it's not a long, long letter. It's easy and quick to read. We only write to Democratic voters, so we're just doing a simple, fun, positive get-out-the-vote drive. We're not trying to persuade a voter on a postcard to change their allegiance, to jump parties, or, or to try to convince a, a new voter, a, a swing, so-called swing voter. We're not doing any of that. That persuasion effort is still important, but that should be done by the campaign with closer supervision of what's being written, what's being sent out. You know, those kinds of messages are really delicate works of art, because you don't want to accidentally trigger a Republican voter to be even more convinced to vote against your Democratic candidate. That would be ruining the, the point, and then you're wasting the volunteers' time and postage. So for our part, we only write to Democrats, and it really is just a, a message to remind them to vote. Because a lot of these special elections and down ballot elections, runoff elections, the voters just are not aware of it. So that's one reason I think our postcards are effective. It's that they're authentic, grassroots, volunteer-driven messages. Well, Tony, we're, we're almost out of time, but I, I wanted to ask this important question, and that is the eyes of the country are really focused on Georgia, where the winners of these two Senate runoff elections on January 5th uh, will determine who controls the U.S. Senate for the next few years. Tell us a bit about your project here and what you have already been doing on this uh, this important set of races. Well, we certainly we wrote for the candidates in the general election, and we wrote for. Uh, and at the time, we were asked to write for in support of John Ossoff, and so we did that. We wrote more postcards for him than we had for any other candidate in our history. And now for the runoff, we're including his name and uh, Reverend Warnock's name, as well as Daniel Blackman, who's running for a public service commission. They're all three going to be on the same ballot. They're all three Democrats running against Republicans. We did one round where we wrote to everybody who had voted, every Democrat who had voted in the general, and we encouraged them to request an absentee ballot. The second round of writing was to everybody who had either not yet requested an absentee ballot, um, and we were letting them know about the, uh, you know, they, they could do that still, or they could plan to vote early in person. And then we recently changed the message as we were getting closer to the election date to simply just tell people plan to vote for, you know, on June, January 5th. Mm -hmm. And we, we, you know, we include voters of all voting habits, low propensity Democrats, uh, you know, voters or high propensity, any age, any ethnicity. The point is a Democratic vote, it counts the same as any other Democratic vote. And so we, we work to get every Democrat out to the polls or to vote by mail. That was Tony the Democrat, founder of the Progressive Electoral Outreach Project, Postcards to Voters. Learn more about the project and how you can become a PTV volunteer by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs in MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WBCR in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, Verdon Square Radio in New Providence, New Jersey, KRFP in Moscow, Idaho, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.